Hello and welcome. Uh, this is the lecture for Def Jam, so I'll give you a second to get on Moodle and open up the PowerPoint that goes with Def Jam. So today's topic is something I'm going to really try to limit. Um, I literally have a book about this very subject, and most of the information I'm pulling for this is from my own research, so... Uh, just be aware, I'm greatly condensing this information. I'm only talking about a very limited amount of things. Um, as I said, this is something I literally have a book on right now at the publisher. Hopefully it comes out fairly soon on this subject. So uh, I'm going to try to keep this as... I don't want to say limited, but uh, I'm not going to be telling everything I know about this by any stretch. So I know quite a bit about Def Jam. So... Uh, let's do with a quick little refresher of rap prior to 1984. Uh, by the time we get to, like, 1984, rap has been a recorded genre for about five years. You got about five years since the release of Rapper's Delight, which really brings hip-hop as a national genre. Uh, nothing is charted exceptionally high. I mean, yes, yeah, some things haven't been charted. Nothing too high, nothing too, you know, exceptionally high. Uh, the audience is mainly centered around um, African-American folks and disco folks. Uh, very limited audience base. They're not really going that broad with the audience. They're not charting exceptionally high. Uh, still very much seen as a New York phenomenon. Uh, still seen very much as a fad. Uh, there's not... People don't believe it has that much staying power. Uh, however, some things happen around 1984, 1985 that make rap music much more ingrained in the mainstream. And lucky for us, the same guy is involved with both of them. Uh, and after 1984, the genre gets a lot more exposure and staying power, even though there's stuff going on in the black community in the ghetto that is really impacting um, perception of it as a whole. Let's go over one. You'll see young Russell Simmons. Well, youngish Russell Simmons. Uh, he's the main guy we're going to be talking about today. Russell Simmons is the main focus point for what we're talking about today with Def Jam, but also with Run DMC. Uh, Pretty much, I mean, it, it's hard to say that there's only one figure uh, who's the reason why rap music is as known today around the world, around, you know, American popular culture as it is. But if you want to talk about, I mean, I'm not saying it wouldn't have grown otherwise, but the way it did grow, the way that it did become mainstream music, uh, the manner in which and the way it was presented is very much done to Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons was hip-hop's champion to the mainstream. Like, it is... He was the guy who made rap music into a global thing. The way that we see rap music now, the way that rap music developed, he's the guy kind of behind it. Um, a good comparison for him is somebody like Henry Ford. Uh, Henry Ford did not invent the automobile. Um, automobiles were not invented by Henry Ford. But what Henry Ford did was he invented the automobile that you could afford. He, he was the one who brought the automobile to the mainstream. And the way that we view cars nowadays is in large part because of Henry Ford. Likewise, the way that rap music is understood and perceived has to do with Russell Simmons. And Russell Simmons very much plays into this dynamic we were talking about with the uh, post-civil rights disillusionment. He's actually before, born before the civil rights movement, a little bit. Uh, he is born in Queens, I believe he's born in Jamaica, Queens, actually, in 1957, to a very middle-class family. 
Uh, Russell Simmons' background, very middle class. In fact, whenever I was doing my research, um, earlier the research uh, for my, not this book, but a previous project, I was struck just how much of the early rap guys didn't come from lower class backgrounds. They came from very middle class, working class backgrounds. And Russell Simmons is no, instru- uh, is no exception. Uh, his dad is a school administrator, all right? His dad was a school administrator. His dad was a teacher. Later on, he became like a... Almost, almost like an assistant principal for, for the school system there in Queens. Uh, his mother works for the Parks Department. So his parents are very much, you know, they're civic employees, uh, very middle-class life. I can't iterate that enough. Yes, you know... They are black in the 50s, but it's a very middle-class life. Very middle-class, very respectable. Uh, his parents met in college. Both of his parents were college graduates. Um, yeah, not, not necessarily the standard for most African Americans in the 1950s and 60s is Russell Simmons' background. Now, the Simmons family, his mom and dad, they have uh, three sons, uh, Daniel Jr., they have Russell and Joseph. Uh, Russell Simmons is the middle child. And in a sense, they're living a very comfortable American dream. You know, they've got the three kids. They have a very nice house. Uh, both parents are working, very respectable jobs, pretty good income. Um, you know, they provided a very comfortable lifestyle for their kids. Yes, there were racial issues. I mean, they were still, you know, they were still black in the 50s and 60s in the United States. I mean, so there are definitely discrimination and stuff they came up against. <clears throat> but it's a very comfortable middle class life. And when Russell is about seven or eight years old, they move to a different uh, area of Queens. They, lo- they move to Hollis. Uh, Jamaica, Queens is where, the, where he's born. However, Hollis, Queens is where he has most of his young life, most of his growing up. Uh, when they move to Hollis, it still has a decent white population. Uh, it's about a 10% or so white population of Hollis, Queens. Uh, however, what happens is a very white flighty thing. Once African-American families such as the Simmonsons move in, a lot of the white folks move out. Uh, within a couple of years of moving there, Simmons would recall that the entire neighborhood was black. But it's still very much a middle-class neighborhood. It's a middle-class black neighborhood. Um, that is about to change a little bit whenever heroin becomes common in that area. Uh, later on, we talk about the you know crack and a lot of black neighborhoods being pretty bad. But heroin, even before crack cocaine, heroin comes into Hollis, really starts impacting the neighborhood, kind of accelerates this idea that it's getting worse. Uh, this impacted the Simmons family because uh, Russell's brother, Joseph, uh, not Joseph, sorry, Daniel, Daniel Jr., his eldest brother, uh, started developing a drug habit, uh, becomes addicted for a while. Not a very, uh, you know, not a very good situation. His brother has to leave, uh, stay with his grandmother for a while just to get him out of the neighborhood. And that, that's kind of where Russell Simmons is living. It's a fairly decent-ish neighborhood. Oh, I should also mention, uh, because his mom works, sorry, because his dad works in the school system, uh, the Simmons boys are able to go to the best schools in the Queens School District. Basically, their, their parents make sure they go to different schools, uh, bit more integrated schools, uh, schools with the best education opportunities. So even though, you know, things are rough, I mean, yes, Daniel gets addicted to heroin for a while, uh, it's still fairly comfortable. Now, granted, to be fair, seeing his brother's uh, addiction 
did make Russell Simmons want to stay away from drugs, at least uh, for a little while. Uh, he did not want to take drugs. He saw what you know taking drugs did to his brother. wasn't a very positive experience. However, however, <laughs> he did notice that selling drugs makes money. And you can say a lot of things about Russell Simmons. A lot of people have said a lot of different things about Russell Simmons. Uh, but one thing that has remained consistent throughout his life is the man likes making money. Uh, the man has a very capitalistic streak. Uh, he is interested in making some cash. And so even though he sees that, you know, drugs are bad, um, it's, it's illegal, it's dangerous, you know, to take, uh, he can't deny that the people who are selling drugs are making some money. So while he's still in high school, he starts selling uh, weed, just very... You know, small little, not even dime bags, just tiny little bags of marijuana. Uh, nothing, nothing too special, nothing too major. Uh, because of this, he also starts to get involved in gang activity, very minor. Uh, Simmons himself even admits in his autobiography, uh, very minor. He does not pretend to be like a, this type of gangster or you know, big time gang banger. He's very much, uh, very small scale. He says, you know, we we're kind of goofing around. He actually gets scared away from gang life after uh, he sees somebody get killed. Uh, when one of his one of one of his uh, fellow gang members is killed by a rival gang, that pretty much uh, you know horrifies Simmons. He's like, okay, I'm not going to be involved in gang stuff. Uh, he also stops selling drugs because he says it's too dangerous. But he still wants to make money. Still wants to make money, and so basically, his it's a senior year of high school, and his dad's like, hey, you should probably get a real job. Um, his dad, you know, he's the, that older, you know, World War II generation. Uh, greatest generation we ever were to call it. You know, his dad... His dad... His parents were never too actively involved in the civil rights movement, but they are very much, like, middle-class black parents. So his dad's like, you need to get a real job. You know, you need to do something legit. And uh, basically helps him get a job at a local Orange Julius. Uh, we don't really have Orange Juliuses around here. It's just like a little burger stand, except they make smoothie... Not even smoothies. It's like a combination of a milkshake and orange juice. Uh, he works there for about a month before quitting. Uh, he does not like it. He thinks it's kind of boring. It's not very lucrative. Uh, he doesn't like just the whole grind of the work business. It's, it's a mixed job. It's something that he particularly likes. Uh, however, he does need to make ends meet. He does have to make ends meet. And so he discovers coca leaf. Uh, coca leaf is a type of incense that sort of looks like cocaine. It's not really cocaine by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, if you snort it, it doesn't really act like cocaine, but it acts enough like cocaine, according to Simmons, that if you're a junkie, you can't really know the difference. And it's also not technically illegal. Um, it was theoretically legal to have coca leaf incense, so basically, for about two years, he makes a living selling fake cocaine. He's selling coca leaf influence. Uh, pretty much his logic was like, the type of junkies who could afford, you know, you know, cocaine, this is pre-crack, so it's the type of junkies who could afford this stuff uh, wouldn't really complain about if it not being that effective because of how cheap it was. And, you know, someone said he lived high on the hog for about two years selling fake cocaine. Um, you know, if the cops pulled you over with coca leaf, it's theoretically just incense. It's not illegal by any stretch. Um, yeah, he, he does that for quite a while, and he says that that kept him pretty well. Uh, this is the early 70s in this time period, so like 74, 73. 
1975, basically his dad is, you know, you know he's kind of goofing around, um, you know, selling fake cocaine, but you really can't make a long-term living selling fake cocaine. Also, I'm not sure how aware of this his dad is, because his dad probably wouldn't like it very much. Uh, his dad really insists that he needs to do something good. He needs to, you know, make, make something out of himself, use every opportunity, and it's like, you need to go to college. He's like, you know, I, need, I want you to go to college. And in 1975, he starts at City College of New York, CCNY. Uh, at the time, CCNY had open admission. So pretty much, you just sign up and you can go to CCNY. Uh, it is in Manhattan. Remember, uh, Simmons is, you know, he's originally from Queens. Uh, now he moves over to Manhattan. Now at CCNY, he discovers two things that become his, like, lifelong, not lifelong, but become a real, um, real, real centerpiece of his life for a while. Uh, the first one is PCP, also known as Angel Dust. Uh, Simmons has since gotten clean. In fact, he's like super clean now. He's on to like meditation, you know, Eastern religions and stuff like that. By the time he was super into PCP, he would later admit that most of the seventies and eighties, uh, he was doing a good bit of, uh, PCP and Angel Dust. Uh, the other thing that he discovers, which is more important to us, is hip-hop. Um, you know, he's in CCNY, which is in the middle of Manhattan. He starts going to some of the various nightclubs, and he starts hearing rap music. He starts hearing hip-hop at the nightclubs, uh, the places that are hosting DJs. Now, what really gets him into it is a man by the name of Curtis Walker, a.k.a. Curtis Blow. Now, I remember I uh, mentioned last class that Curtis Blow is the second to have a rap record released with a national-wide release with Christmas rapping. Uh, before that, though, Curtis Walker, you know, his, his, his stage name is Curtis Blow. His real name is Curtis Walker. Uh, he is also a student at CCNY, and they meet in the student lounge. They meet in the student lounge where basically they bond over an interest in music and also drugs. Uh, remember, um, Russell Simmons likes PCP, Angel Dust. Uh, Curtis Walker likes marijuana. That's how he gets the name Curtis Blow. It's a, it's a you know, euphemism for marijuana. Now, Curtis Blow is fairly tight, fairly decent friends with Grandmaster Flash. Uh, Grandmaster Flash, as you recall, is one of the uh, founders of hip-hop, one of the godfathers. And because they're fairly tight, they're fairly close, occasionally they will do shows together. You know, usually Grandmaster Flash does his uh, Furious Five, but sometimes Curtis Blow will do a show here or there, maybe open for Grandmaster Flash. They're on a friendly terms. So remember, this is this is technically before rap music's been recorded. We're talking about the you know mid '70s, '75, '76. Um, still a very small world. Everybody's still very young. But Simmons hears the music and he becomes entranced. He's like, "Wow, I want to be a part of that." Now the thing is, Russell Simmons. For somebody who's so central in rap music, he can't rap and he can't DJ. Uh, when it comes to the actual making music, uh, Russell Simmons is not the greatest. He, he barely has any talent whatsoever. Uh, to my knowledge, he has never made a rap song. He has never rapped on a record. Uh, likewise, he's his producing, like actually making a beat, there's only a handful of times he's done that. Um, in fact, I think only one or two times one of which I will talk about. But by and large, he doesn't really make the music. But he's interested in it, and he wants to make money, and so he becomes... He, Russell Simmons gets into party promotion. Go over one slide, 
you will see his business card for Rush Promotions. Uh, Rush is a nickname for Russell Simmons. It's been around for a while. Uh, basically, he got the nickname Rush. I believe Eddie um, Curtis Blow was the one who gave it to him. For the Basically, he talked very fast. Uh, also, Run from Run DMC. Also got the nickname Run for talking very fast. Apparently, the Simmons boys talk quite fast. Uh, also, it could be a drug reference to his use of uh, angel dust, just the Russian drugs. But you have to remember, during this time period, so like 76 to 78, before rap music becomes recorded, uh, the main way that rap guys and anybody involved in hip-hop made money was through nightclub gigs. And party promoters are a pretty big part of that. And um, the, the way that a party promoter works is basically they try to generate buzz for an event so the venue would let them come in and try to get uh, money off of that. Uh, basically, a party promoter would be like, hey, you know, Mr. Nightclub, um, you know, let us have your party here. We can guarantee you that a ton of people are going to come. We're going to generate a lot of business. It's good for the nightclub. Uh, you're going to have a lot of people in the nightclub. You're going to have a lot of business. You know, you tell the club you're going to get, you know, a certain, you know, a couple hundred people in there on a given night in exchange for a cut or the entirety of the door. So that's like, you know, your cover. Uh, different club promoters have different uh, rates, but generally, generally, uh, the promoter only makes money off the door. Sometimes they get the entire door. Other times they only get a portion of the door. And the club in exchange gets uh, the drinks, the drinks and other stuff. Uh, you know, drinks, other food, bottle service, things like that. That's where, that's where nightclubs really make their money because the markup is so high. So that's that's kind of how nightclub promoters work. That's how party promoters work. Um, is basically basically promising a very big turnout for an event, and in exchange they get a cut of whoever comes in. Uh, this is still very much the case today. Well, not today because Corona. But um, you know, if you see flyers around for a, for a nightclub event or a party or something, um, I, I've seen now that sometimes it's like uh, MMA fights. Some nightclubs will have MMA fights. So like a fight promoter, actually, a fight promoter is another pretty good example. Like you know, a fight promoter is promising this really good card for fights. Uh, they make money off the door, that sort of thing. And so uh, Russell Simmons has his own promoter promotion uh, company called Rush Productions. Um, starts promoting around New York. Remember, he's still very much in. Um, he's still very much in college. It's very small time. Everything's very new. Um, also, it, it is kind of interesting because on the times when Grandmaster Flash wasn't available, which was fairly often, because he's a pretty big deal, especially as the seventies go on. Uh, Simmons starts trying to work with Curtis Blow. Uh, with basically promoting Curtis Blow. He's like, hey, Curtis, I'm going to make you become the biggest act. He starts getting Curtis Blow, uh, Curtis Blood, Curtis Blow independent gigs. Uh, however, in the times when Grandmaster Flash can't DJ, uh, basically Russell Simmons uses his little brother, his 13-year-old brother, Joseph, as his DJ, as a DJ for Curtis Blow, uh, lets him spin records. Um, his, his little brother, Joseph, gets the nickname DJ Run, his disco son, and Refers to Curtis Blow, and the nickname is going to stick. Uh, this is the same run that is later in Run DMC. Uh, the the promotion business gets pretty big, actually. This gets pretty big, and uh, after a series of very successful concerts, uh, Russell Simmons drops out of college 
right before his senior year. Like, I want to say he was five or six hours away from graduating, a degree in sociology. Um, very much upsets his dad. His dad thinks he's blowing his life for this silly music thing. Uh, still in 1979, Simmons is able to use some of the contacts he's made uh, with the New York media through party promotion and stuff to try to get a record made. Uh, remember, this is kind of around the time when Rapper's Light is about to come out. Uh, he's probably heard King to the Third. He's heard the DJ stuff do it. Uh, Rapper's Light, I don't think Simmons has heard yet. And so basically, they do a novelty record with Curtis Blow called Christmas Rapping. Uh, ironically, even though Curtis Blow is a rapper, very much capable of writing his own lyrics, uh, the lyrics for Christmas Rapping were not written by Curtis Blow. They were actually written by a man named J.B. Moore, who is a 37-year-old white guy working in advertising. Um, if you listen to the song, it's very lame. I'm probably not going to have you listen to it, because it's lame. Uh, it is a novelty record, though. It is a novelty record. You know, holiday novelty records uh, can do consistent work. They can be okay. And it actually does get decent sales. Now, this is parlayed into another record over the slide called The Breaks. Uh, the Breaks is a pretty big record for Curtis Blow in 1980. Uh, it is the first rap record to be certified gold. Um, remember... Sugar Hill Records never officially registered with the RIAA and other agencies that you're supposed to do to certify gold records. Uh, however, Curtis Blow was. Now, Rush Productions uh, gross include more acts. Uh, as you can see, if you look at his business card, you're going to see all the different acts who are involved with him. You know, Orange Crush, Jimmy Spider. I think Houdini gets involved in this time period uh, with a W, not Houdini the H. Harry Houdini the musician, as long as it's dead. Uh, but he, but Simmons is finding that the rap that is getting performed is very disco influenced. He, he he almost thinks it's too disco influenced, especially now that rap is becoming recorded. Um, the 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 vibe for recorded rap music is very much going disco. He's saying that there's a disconnect between the rap that's performed in records versus the rap that's performed in shows. It's very different aesthetics. Uh, however, because disco is so popular and because rap music is being marketed as like an offshoot of disco, uh, that's what the record companies want. That's what seems to sell. That seems to be the standard. Uh, Simmons is, you know, he's just in party promotion. He really wants to get more into artist representation. Uh, yes, he is, you know, kind of managing Curtis Blow, but Curtis Blow gets signed to another label. So he, he's, he's still promoting for Curtis Blow. Uh, he's not really doing that much art of, artist sort of uh, representation. What he really wanted, though, was an artist he could really mold into what he deemed a more street um, aesthetic. He wants something that's more in line with the stuff you see on the street, stuff you see in, you know, in the ghetto you know, with young Afro-American males. Uh, they're not actually dressing in full disco attire. You know, they're not all wearing zipper leather outfits. Uh, he wants something that he, he, that he thought would sell better but also be more w real. Also, he wants a bigger cut. <laughs> especially when it comes to recording. If you go over one slide, you will see he did not have to look very far, uh, very far at all. Um, also, fun fact about Russell Simmons, he has the gift slash curse uh, of looking, of being a million years old, even though he wasn't that old. At the time of this picture, he was in his mid to late 20s. He looks way older. Also, he dresses old, too. We'll talk about that in a second. 
Uh, yeah, basically, uh, Simmons' little brother Joseph had grown in a, as a lyricist since his days as Curtis Blow's disco son. And he also had a little duo with his friend Daryl McDaniels for a while. And they also finally added a DJ, another friend of theirs, named uh, Jason Bazell, uh, who, who took on the moniker Jam Master J. Now, all while Simmons is doing this stuff with Curtis Blow, his little brother Joseph and, and Daryl are, are pestering him to let them record. And then Simmons is like, I really don't want to let you. You're young. Um, they're untested. I don't want my parents to kill me because I let you start rapping and they're still kind of mad at me for not taking college very seriously. Um, Simmons' parents really wanted their kids, really wanted at least one of their kids like get a full college education. Uh, Joseph was still in high school whenever this started out. Um, it was only after Joseph got out of high school that uh, Russell Simmons would allow him to record. Uh, after they graduate high school, start college, uh, you know, Daryl McDaniels and Joseph Simmons, Simmons is like, okay, sorry, Russell Simmons. If I say Simmons, I generally mean Russell Simmons. If I say Joseph or Run, I mean the guy from Run DMC. They're brothers, same last name. Uh, basically, Simmons, Russell Simmons says, all right, look, I'll let you record under one condition. I have full creative control over your look. Like, your public persona, that's all me. I can craft it however I want. I can change your name. I can change your look. I can change, you know, pretty much anything about you. And, you know, you can write your own rhymes. You can make your own music. I can't, I can't really do that. <clears throat> but when it comes to your public persona, that's all me. Uh, basically, just wanting to record, they are like, yeah, sure, Russell, whatever you want. Uh, the changes happen very quick. Uh, Daryl McDaniels now got the moniker DMC. Uh, before that time, uh, he called himself generally Easy D or, Mick, or D Mick, D McD. However, Russell Simmons is like, nope, your new name is DMC. Likewise, the name of the group was going to be Run DMC. Uh, this really upset uh, Run and DMC because they're like, wow, you know, all the other rap groups of like the Treacherous Two or the you know the Street Killers. And we sound lame. Also, uh, you did not mention Jam Master J at all. He's our DJ. It's not, you know, the, the, the trio. They just said, no, the two rappers are the, are the focus point here. Uh, the next thing that they changed was their attire. Uh, out were the leather zippers. Leather zippers are gone. Instead, they got to go with streetwear, stuff that it makes it look like, you know, kids on the street could have. Things like Adidas shoes with no laces, uh, Kangol hats, jumpsuits. A whole lot of black. If you look at what they're wearing in that picture with Russell Simmons, actually go over one, that's an even better picture, which is just the three guys. So you got Jam Master J on the left, DMC in the middle, uh, Run on the right. They're wearing the Adidas jumpsuits, uh, the gold rope chain, the fedoras. It's a, it's a look that looks tough, but it's also a look that's very obtainable. Uh, also, Simmons liked using name brands, so it'd be very easy for the look to be copied. He's like, hey, you know, have an Adidas jumpsuit, you can look like Run DMC. Um, Simmons was obsessed. Uh, this is not something that's too important for this class, but I'll just tell it because it's from my book. Uh, Simmons is obsessed with uh, basically trying to get them an endorsement deal with a big company. And they do, <laughs> basically because they make a song about Adidas, and then Adidas gives them an endorsement deal, and Simmons makes like a million dollars off of it. So go figure. Also, everybody except Simmons would later claim that Simmons was high on PCP when he came up with the idea. So, go figure. 
Uh, the thing you do need to know, though, is that basically Run DMC's look became the standard for rap attire for, like, years to come. They were... Basically, when we come to hip-hop fashion, it's pretty much from Run DMC. What we know nowadays for, like, hip-hop fashion, rap fashion, whatever you want to call it, is from Run DMC. The old, you know, leather with zippers look, you don't get anymore. You know, that's that's not rap wear. Just the street wear, tennis shoes, um, jerseys come a bit later, but like, well, no, one of them was, no, there were Oakland Raiders there, so a eh, little bit of, you know, logos, uh, the Adidas thing, uh, sneaker, all, the sneaker culture in general uh, comes between the Air Jordan, but also Run DMC a little bit earlier with the Adidas. Actually, they came out at the same time. It, they pretty much set the standard of what rap were to look like. Uh, Simmons also takes producer control for just their first record, uh, which is very unusual. When it comes to making music, uh, generally Russell Simmons did not do that. Russell Simmons does not have that much musical creativity. Uh, the songs that they craft, Sucker MCs and It's Like That, uh, sound like nothing else in hip-hop. Um, maybe listen to one of them. I don't think I'm going to have that on Moodle. But if you listen to one of them, uh, you're going to hear that it, it sounds very different than the other stuff going on in rap music. Uh, Russell Simmons is able to use the, his contacts to get Run DNC on a small label. Uh, and, and Sucker MCs and It's Like That actually do okay. Um, it's in 1982, the fall of 1982. It actually does okay. It, smells about, it sells about a quarter of a million copies, mainly around New York City. Uh, fairly respectable. Go over one slide. One of the guys who heard this record is Rick Rubin, who's about to become super important. Uh, Rick Rubin is also one of the more important figures when it comes to rap music, apparently in the sound of rap music, and basically what becomes the national standard of rap music. Now, judging by what he looks like, you'd be like, huh, he looks like a white guy. He is. You might think like, hey, he looks like a, a metal dude. He was a metal dude for a while. In fact, he's still kind of a metal guy, kind of a rock and roll guy. Uh, Rick Rubin is the only child of wealthy Jewish parents on Long Island. Um, his parents were quite wealthy, and um, he's living in Long Island, which is technically not part of New York City. It's kind of the suburbs. It's very wealthy. It's very white. Uh, he's from a very wealthy Jewish family. Uh, his parents only have him. He's our one child. I want to say they have kids later in life, too, so like his parents super spoil him. Um, you know, Russell Simmons came from a fairly comfortable middle class upbringing. Rick Rubin came from a super comfortable, rich upbringing. Like his parents are very wealthy. Uh, give him pretty much anything he wants. Like it's comical, just how much stuff they give Rick Rubin whenever he's a teenager. It was like one summer he's like, "Hey, I think I'm interested in photography." So, like as a teenager, like while he's still in high school, not only do his parents buy him a fancy camera. They, like, sign him up for photography classes at Harvard. Like, this is a guy who doesn't want for anything. Uh, he gets kind of involved in music. He likes music. His parents buy him all these expensive amps. They buy him all sorts of expensive, like, you know, recording equipment, all sorts of expensive um, record players, you know, tape players, things like that. Uh, his parents want him to go to college. His parents want him to go to college. And, you know, he's like, hey, I don't know if I really want to go to college, but his parents are like, no, you need to go to college. We're going to insist because, you know, that's what you do. 
You're an upper, you're a upper, upper, upper middle class young man, so you need to go to college. Uh, you can either go to the University of Chicago or Northwestern. Sorry, not Northwestern, NYU, uh, New York University. Uh, Simmons decides to go to it, not Simmons, sorry. Ruben decides to go to NYU because his parents demand it. And it's close to all the fun stuff I like in New York. Um, it's got, you know, I, I'm going to be really close to the clubs. I can listen to music, things like that. Uh, when he gets to NYU, he spends very little time uh, turning his dorm room into a giant music um, place. Uh, you can see a picture of him in the dorm room. That's a bad angle, frankly. Uh, there's a great interview with his roommate. He's like, yeah, one, you know, one wall. We bunked our beds and like have the desk right there. And then the other side was nothing but musical equipment. Just like records upon records upon records. Uh, he had all of his recording equipment. He had like thousands, hundreds if not thousands of records. Ginormous speakers. Um, you know, the first day he, mo- he moved in, he did all this stuff. Whenever his roommate came in, he tells his roommate, yeah, uh, if you want to study or anything, go to the library. We're not doing any schoolwork here. Um, I can play my music whenever I want. You know, I can do whatever I want. This is my space. I'm going to have all my music. I bunk the beds. Uh, just, you know, tough tootie. Deal with it. Uh, Rick Rubin's favorite genre at the time is rock music, particularly punk rock music, but also art rock music. Uh, art rock is a genre you really probably haven't heard of before. I can't rightfully recommend it. It's a very um, experimental genre. It does stuff with sounds just to see if it can. Uh, punk rock is something you are definitely more familiar with. Uh, Simmons is very, not Simmons, sorry, Rubin is very much in love with uh, punk rock music, uh, specifically the sense of rebellion. Uh, he, he, he thinks it's, you know, sense of rebellion is wonderful. However, he's beginning to believe that maybe the, uh, the sense of rebellion, of authenticity in rock music and punk rock music is fading out. Maybe it's becoming a little bit too soft. He also really, 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 really likes pro wrestling. Uh, very much he adores pro wrestling. Um, he, he is fascinated with pro wrestling still to this day. Still to this day. Um, if you want to get Rick Rubin to talk to you, um, we'll talk about what happens to Rick Rubin in a little bit. Uh, he'll, he'll talk to you a little bit about rap music, but if you talk to him about wrestling, he will go on and on and on. The man loves wrestling. And pretty much his time at NYU, uh, he doesn't really go to class. He doesn't really sleep at night. Uh, pretty much at night, he just goes to music clubs or goes to pro wrestling shows. Uh, he's at one of these nightclubs where he hears rap music for the first time. Uh, he is really entranced by what he thinks it could be, specifically the sense of rebellion. You know, he's like, wow, there's a more authentic level of rebellion in this than there is in punk rock music. And he's very much entranced by it. But not only that, it's not enough that Rick Rubin likes rap music or thinks it's going to be cool. Uh, He wants to make his own rap record. That's the thing. It's not enough that he just wants to listen to it. He wants to make his own rap music. Now, because of his overly generous parents, I mentioned before, Rick Rubin actually had access to pretty good recording equipment in his dorm room. Uh, He had tried to make some records earlier with his art rock band called Hose. Uh, These records are not very good. Uh, But what is good is the name of his record label. Uh, He calls the record label Def Jam. Uh, Takes the name from a uh, Jamaican slang. Uh, Jam just means music. You know, oh man, that's a good jam. That's that's just jam. You know, a beat, whatever you want to call it. 
Uh, Def, D-E-F. Uh, Jamaican term could be short for death, like, you know, the opposite of living, death, but uh, kind of a term you hear in Jamaican saying, like, oh man, this is the death. This is the best thing. It's, it's death. So basically, the term Def Jam literally just means good music, and Rick Rubin, the first record not even going to go that without confusing, but he had released some stuff on it with his own little art band. Um, it sucked. Uh, the problem is uh, that Rick Rubin doesn't know anybody who could rap. Uh, he can't really rap, and he doesn't know too much about making rap beats. Uh, he's trying to teach himself. He actually does a pretty good job when you listen to it. Uh, starts asking, you know, these guys at the rap shows, maybe who could help him. I should mention he's still a high, he's still a um, college kid. He's like 18, 19 years old. Uh, you know, he goes up to the Treacherous Three. We turned, we talked about them last week. Uh, you know, Cool Mo D was a member of that. Uh, Asked the Treacherous Three, basically, hey, can we make a rap song with you? Uh, he said, the, basically, the three are like, well, we're actually signed with Sugar Hill, so we can't. But one of the members is like, you know, I got a brother who kind of can rap. He's working for a pharmacy now, but... He's a little bit older. He, he can rap. He goes under the moniker of Tila Rock. Uh, maybe you can ask him. So basically, Rick Rubin gets to know Tila Rock and go over one slide. You will see uh, the first rap record released by Rick Rubin. And actually, Rick Rubin produces it. He actually makes the beat. He really strips it down, has things like hand claps, things like that. Uh, it's called It's Yours, uh, Tila Rock and Jazzy J. I don't know why Jazzy J. Oh, Jazzy J is one of the DJs. Uh, Rick Rubin's the guy who produces it, though. You can see, you know, produced by Rick Rubin. Uh, this is the first Def Jam record. Not post-merger. I'm going to ask you something about post-merger, so don't get confused about that. Uh, so he makes it serious. And the uh, thing is now that Rick Rubin needs somebody to promote the record. Get some, you know, he has no street credibility. He's just a rich white kid from NYU who recorded a record mainly because he had a lot of money and had access to it. You know, records of one of the Treacherous Three's brothers. And he basically is asking, like, who do we know that can promote promote this record? How can I help this get more airplay? And basically somebody recommends Russell Simmons to him. He's like, yeah, there's this guy, Russell, he does Rust Productions. Um, he seems to be the best person out there for promoting rap music. Meanwhile, Russell Simmons heard its years and it's like, oh my gosh, this record... Uh, Russell Simmons would say, quote, it's the blackest sounding record on the planet. And he especially thinks the beat is the blackest sounding beat in the world. It's like, I got to meet the guy who, who, who made it. Uh, whatever they do meet, it is disbelief. It is. <laughs> they, they cannot believe their eyes. Uh, Russell Simmons uh, is, meets Rick Rubin. It's like, oh my gosh, this fat, Jewish kid, this heavyset Jewish, hairy Jewish kid, and he's a kid, he's like 19 years old, 19, 20 years old, is, is the guy who made the blackest beat of all time. Uh, likewise, whenever Rick Rubin meets Russell Simmons, he's like, who's this bald guy dressed as a substitute teacher? Uh, yeah, even though Russell Simmons is like known for rap music and rap uh, fashion, uh, for the longest time, he would just dress in like polo shirts and stuff like that very old looking <laughs> and he's like who is this old guy just drinking screwdrivers uh, that's that's not a drink known for young people to drink as screwdrivers but apparently Russell Simmons loves screwdrivers uh, still they hit, they hit it off they hit it off very well uh, they become pretty good friends pretty quick they both see a lot of potential in rap music 
they both are really driven to see it can really become something. Uh, they decide to kind of go in business together when, in 1984, they have what's sure to be a hit uh, by an artist by the name of LL Cool J. Let's talk about this for a second. Uh, they kind of... Def Jam Records was theoretically based in Rick Rubin's dorm room. Basically, the address for Def Jam Records was his dorm room at NYU. Like, basically, that was his street address. And so once It's Years came out, all these aspiring rappers start sending demo tapes to what they think is a pretty big record label, not a dorm room at a college. Uh, basically, hey, let's see you know, if we can record anything here. Let's see if we can get it in this hit. And uh, you know, Rick Rubin starts listening to some of these demos. One of his artists, what, it's not one of his artists, one of his roommates, one of the, actually one of his guys who's in a band with is listening to these demos. He's like, wow, this, this kid from, from Queens is pretty good. Uh, his name's Todd Smith. Uh, James Todd Smith, and he's like, wow, this guy's pretty good. We, we should maybe do something about him. Uh, he's 16 years old. The kid's 16 years old. Uh, name's Todd Smith, but everybody calls him, well, his nickname is Ladies Love Cool James or LL Cool J. And he's got this song, which is sure to be really good. It's called I Need a Beat. Uh, you know, another, another disbelief story. It's the first time that LL Cool J ever meets Rick Rubin. Uh, it's also disbelief because he's like, hey, are you, he only talked to Rick Rubin on the phone. And so whenever LL Cool J gets to his, the dorm room, and it's like, hey, are you Rick? And Rick's like, yeah, I'm Rick. And he's like, and LL Cool J's like, I, I thought you'd be black. To which Rick Rubin goes, cool. <laughs> so apparently people thought Rick Rubin was black and not this rather large, hairy Jewish dude. And so basically, they really want to... Um, you know, Rick Rubin's like, this is guaranteed to be an amazing, you know, hit. This is going to be a massive hit. This is in 1984. Uh, we should merge the company. We should merge. We should have our interests together because we're going to make what is sure to be a big time hit. Uh, the first song released, like I said, is I Need a Beat. I should mention that because it's on the quiz. Uh, Simmons is hesitant at first. At first, Simmons is hesitant. Uh, because he is managing artists from multiple different labels. Uh, you know, he's got Run DMC at a label, you know, Houdini and, uh, and Crush Groove are at different labels. Uh, Orange Crush is at a different label. It's all this different label stuff. They're, they're trying to get things to come together. Uh, Simmons is kind of hesitant because he's like, you know, I, I don't know if I want to do this. However, in time, Rick Rubin kind of uh, whittles him down. It's like, hey, we should do it. This is guaranteed to be a hit. Um, Basically, how this happens is they merge together, theoretically. They, they enter into a partnership uh, between Rick Rubin, who is 21, he had just turned 21, and Russell Simmons, who is 26. Sorry, he's 28. Uh, so they are quite young whenever they form Def Jam. Uh, there are issues because, theoretically, Russell Simmons has a separate artist management company. He's got Rush Management slash Rush Productions. That's theoretically a separate uh, group than Def Jam, separate company than Def Jam. And in time, they can be at odds with each other. Uh, one thing that does stay consistent is on Simmons' insistence on selling to the white mainstream. Uh, that is one thing that is consistent about Simmons, is selling to the white mainstream. Uh, particularly, he thinks that you know rebellion music, rock music... Uh, isn't really as authentic as rap music. He says basically the white teenage audience who are angsty, you know, who, who want to hear rebellious music, uh, they are better swayed by rap music because it's more authentic. 
He thinks that Black uh, Black Rebellion is a more authentic rebellion. He also starts packaging Def Jam acts to be very accessible and to go for the widest audience as possible. Uh, this also comes into play as, as to how well Simmons' most famous managed act is doing, and that'd be Run DMC. Oh yeah, here's a picture of LL Cool J and Rick Rubin. Oh, that's a really good picture of Rick Rubin. Uh, however, Run DMC's profile is getting pretty big in 84 and 85. Um, and I, I should mention, and this also might be on your quiz, Run DMC is never signed to Def Jam. Although Russell Simmons is very involved with their public persona and their management, uh, they are never actually signed to Def Jam. Uh, Russell Simmons has always has had tons of artists on his label, never his brother. His brother's band, which he was super involved with, and as we're going to see, it got confusing, but never actually signed to Def Jam. Uh, 1985 is a very big uh, year for the group. Uh, their album, King of Rock, really positioned the group as an angry and aggressive, keyword here, rock and roll act. Simmons is marketing Run DMC as rock music, basically trying to tell the white audience this is the same energy as a rock group for youth culture. This is rebellion music. This is you know, a more authentic rebellion music. He's really selling this. He's really marketing this as rock music for um, white consumers. Uh, this is really demonstrated in their video for Rockbox. Uh, Rockbox is the first proper rap video ever shown on MTV. And it's actually the second video by a black artist. Uh, the first video by a black artist is uh, Thriller by Michael Jackson. Rockbox is the second. And if you watch the video of Rockbox, you're going to see, and I'm going to have it up there on Moodle, uh, you're going to see they're going to a rock and roll club. Uh, they got this little white boy who's like nodding like, yeah, Run DMC is cool. They're in front of a very white audience. Uh, because of Rick Rubin's production, they start having more like, oh yeah, Rick Rubin also produces some of Run DMC stuff, even though theoretically it's a separate label. It gets very confusing. I know lines are very blurry there. Uh, you hear like a lot of uh, guitar, rock riffs in there. Uh, same thing with King of Rock. Uh, their second music video. I don't think I'm going to post that on Moodle, but I think it's a better music video. Uh, in, in that, Run DMC goes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then start destroying it. But it's like kind of the same rebellious energy. And as I mentioned, it's a, uh, Rock Box is the first proper rap video on MTV. I know Blondie was theoretically rap video, but that's not really rap music. Simmons is really trying to cater to an angsty teenager Gen X audience. And it works. Uh, Run DMC becomes quite popular. Uh, they become pretty big. And in many ways, they set the standards. They really set the standards about what rap music is supposed to look like. You know, basically the, the, the image of a rapper in most people's mind. The, the, honestly, the most rapper that most people outside of New York saw was Run DMC. And their persona, that kind of you know, the, the rock, a little bit of the aggressive, you know, kind of a little bit shout, more shouted lyrics and melodic. Uh, that Really, that energy very much is becomes a standard for a lot of different stuff. Uh, meanwhile, Def Jam is trying to find more acts. Uh, LL Cool J is a very good-looking hit maker. Uh, I, cannot, I cannot iterate this enough. LL Cool J is a good-looking kid. He's a, he's a handsome young man, and he's a, he's a lady killer. 
ladies love ladies love Cool James. Ladies just love him. Uh, Def Jam is also looking to find something that kind of taps into aggressive youth rebellion culture. And once again, they don't have to look very far. Uh, there's a punk band called The Young and the Useless that Ruben is friends with. Uh, occasionally, he performed with them. Uh, one of them is his roommate. Uh, uh, one of them is actually his roommate. Uh, theoretically, I think he's the guy who discovered LL Cool J's demo. Uh, basically, he gets this punk band who were not very good punk rockers, not very good, period, with, with instruments. Like, hey, let's just get rid of the instruments and we should just focus on rapping. He renames them, uh, Rick Rubin renames them to be called the Beastie Boys. Uh, the Beastie Boys are three Jewish kids. They're, they're, they're white. If you're unfamiliar with the Beastie Boys, they're very white. And uh, Simmons and Rubin think they're going to be a good draw for the youth consumer. Now, the group gets their big break whenever they open for Madonna. Uh, Madonna is, if you're unfamiliar with Madonna in this time period, she was like the big teen idol. Uh, not quite like a Britney Spears. Jeez, even Britney Spears is dating for y'all. Um, who's somebody that's contemporary? Like Rihanna or something? I guess Rihanna. Yeah, let's go with Rihanna. Uh, she's, uh, you know, kind of a... A lot of her audience is young, even though she's a little bit sexual. And basically, um, they Madonna needs an opening act. Madonna needs somebody to open for and basically, Madonna's manager wants the Fat Boys. Uh, the Fat Boys are another early rap group, uh, still very much in the jokey hip-hop way. Um, you can probably Google around to find the Fat Boys. I, I can't even think of any of their big hits. Uh, they exist, though. Basically, the Fat Boys, uh, Madonna's manager wants the Fat Boys to open for them. And so he calls Russell Simmons... Uh, because pretty much he assumes that all rappers are managed by Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons became like pretty much the name people know for rap music. Uh, the Fat Boys are not managed by Russell Simmons. Uh, they're not managed by Russell Simmons at all, like at all at all. Uh, but Russell Simmons does not want to turn down business or exposure, so he tells Madonna's manager, "Hey, you don't want the Fat Boys. You know the Fat Boys are okay. Uh, they're not the group that you want for your for your opening act." You want the Beastie Boys. Like, uh, the Beastie Boys are, are going to be the one your, your audience are going to love to. Uh, pretty much this is what raises the Beastie Boys' um, profile considerably high. You'll see on the picture, there's the Beastie Boys and Madonna giving champagne. Uh, when they got on stage, the Beastie Boys were not very good stage presence. Uh, basically, Rick Rubin convinced them to like kind of do a pro wrestling thing. Uh, basically, in pro wrestling, uh, something the heel wrestler, the bad guy wrestler, do is basically like try to make the audience mad so they'll boo them. You will get a reaction, like you know, violent booing is a reaction. So it's like you know, you're never going to win over this crowd of teeny boppers who want to hear Madonna, but you might get them to like yell at you and hate you, and they'll remember your name. So pretty much, like the Beastie Boys would come on stage, they'd like fart, they'd flits around, they'd spray beer. Um, Later on, you, you see there's a, there's a picture of them squirting water water guns at Madonna at the New York at the um, at the show at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Um, the the Madonna concerts were legendary for their antics um, and their lack of good showmanship. Still, it really does raise their profile. After the Madonna gig, pretty much everybody knows of the Beastie Boys. You know, they're like, okay, what are these? If these are what these guys were like on stage, what are they going to be like once it's time for recorded music? 
it does raise their profile. Now, like I said, this is 1985. You know, they're still very much getting on their feet. Def Jam is still getting on his feet. Russell Simmons is doing his own thing. And then something really effing weird happens. This is one of those times where art and life go to a really weird place. In the midst of all this, Hollywood comes coming because they want to make a rap movie. They want a movie with rap music. They want, like, a big-budget rap movie. Uh, Things like Purple Rain had come out before, so it's like the idea of, like, hey, we're going to have a music movie. Not that unusual. And since Russell Simmons is, for some reason, the face of of all rap business, they go to him. And the resulting film is called Crush Groove. Uh, I might include a preview. You know, if I can find a preview of YouTube on it, I'll post it. Um, I cannot recommend you not watch this film hard enough. I, I would, I would wholeheartedly suggest you not watch this movie because it is awful. Um, it is not a well-made film. Um, it's pretty much just a series of musical performances. To be fair, it's nothing but a bunch of rappers. Uh, how it gets weird, though is how much real life and the movie's plot overlap. Because the plot is how two guys named Rick and Russell start a, a record label in their dorm room. If that sounds familiar, it's literally what two guys named Rick and Russell did a year prior. Uh, Def Jam had not even been around a year, and there's a movie talking about how this record label was made. Uh, not only that, and it gets even weirder, because guess who plays Rick Rubin in the movie? Rick Rubin plays Rick Rubin in the movie. Guess who plays Russell Simmons? Not Russell Simmons. Actually, Blair Underwood plays Russell Simmons. Uh, Russell Simmons was okay with this. He's like, man, hey, Blair Underwood's a good-looking cat. Like, He's like, yeah, that, that guy got me a lot of chicks because, you know, Blair Underwood played me in a movie. Uh, pretty much everybody else in the movie was rappers playing themselves. So if you look at the at the at the movie at the uh, at the movie poster, uh, Sheila E's in it, Run DMC's in it, Curtis Blow's in it. New Edition is barely in it; they're not really in it. Uh, the Fat Boys are in it because people really want the Fat Boys to be in movies. Uh, uh, maybe I should talk more about the Fat Boys later, but they're not a very important act. Just very on, they're like the big one. Uh, did I mention this is barely a year after Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin? literally lived the plot and now they got a movie made about it it's really weird uh the film is critically panned for very good reasons uh it does make a little bit of money and it does raise everybody's profile quite a bit it expands the business quite a bit now there are some problems with the movie with the crush groove movie uh mainly with the way it was received um there were instances of violence at some of the theaters where it happened now, is that the fault of the film? Not really. Still, it, it, we'll talk about this more later, but the perception of violence with rap music kind of grows. The idea that you get all these people together and bad things happen. Uh, meanwhile, the next year, 1986, Run DMC has their biggest year ever uh, with the re- release of an uh, album called Raising Hell. Raising Hell also goes very strong to the rock thing, uh, but also has their biggest hit single, uh, a, del- a collaboration with Aerosmith. Uh, Aerosmith is an older rock band at this point. Uh, with "Walk This Way," "Walk This Way" is actually an Aerosmith song. They don't change the lyrics that much for the Run DMC version. They do change the beat. They have more record scratches. 
But uh, the music video is really huge. It's a very important music video. And the video really hits home that what's being marketed by Simmons, it's breaking down the walls between rock and roll and rap music. I mean, literally in the movie, Run DMC breaks down a wall between Aerosmith and the group. Uh, it's the more rebellious version of rock and roll, very much for a wide audience. It's still a very popular song. It is a lot of people's, like, really, like, mainstream acceptance came from Run DMC through Walk This Way. Like, it wasn't just like, oh, rap music is a fad. By the time we get to, like, 86, 87, like, rap music has staying power. And it's the version of rap music that Russell Simmons crafted, a very pro-rock version. Uh, Meanwhile, during a tour of Los Angeles, uh, Russell Simmons meets a very important guy by the name of Lior Cohen. You will see him and Russell Simmons looking very, very drunk in that picture. Um, They meet in Los Angeles. Uh, Lior Cohen is very good with the business side of things. Uh, Simmons initially hires Lior Cohen just to be at Rush Management. Remember, Rush Management and and Def Jam are theoretically separate companies. Uh, this causes a lot of contention with Ruben, who feels increasingly distant from Simmons. Simmons is spending more time partying, spending more time doing drugs, drinking, hanging out with models. Uh, when it comes to the music stuff, remember Russell Simmons is never that great on that. That was Rick Ruben's job. And now that he's got a business guy to do more of his business stuff uh, in Lyra Cohen, he doesn't do much of anything. This starts causing a rift between Simmons and, and Ruben. And it gets uh, a lot more contentious. Uh, Ruben wants to sign more acts like the Beastie Boys. He wants more like Slayer. Uh, Slayer is a heavy metal band who is signed to the Def Jam. Uh, Russell Simmons wants more R&B. Uh, Orin Julius Jones is a pretty big signing for Russell Simmons. He's pretty much an R&B singer. Uh, it's interesting they're both trying to parlay, parlay away from like straight-up hip-hop. Uh, Russell Simmons wants more like pop music, wants more R&B music. Uh, Rick Rubin wants more like not just rock music, but like heavy metal, which isn't necessarily the mainstream rock music. Also, Rick Rubin does not get along with Lear Cohen at all. Like at all, at, like at all, at all. Like they, they hate each other. Like they legitimately hate each other. They cannot stand each other. Uh, if you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of them nowadays. Uh, many, many decades later, they are actually acting nice to each other. Um, apparently, the contention between Lear Cohen and Rick Rubin was so high that one day, basically, Russell Simmons like went to an office like, man, my Jews are fighting. Like, again, my Jews are fighting again. Like, they could not get along. Uh, basically, Rick Rubin feels that Lear, Lear Cohen is pushing out like you know his own industry. He's not just staying within Rush Enterprises. I should also mention that even though Def Jam had sales success, it was a super mismanaged company. Like, super mismanaged. It's it's comically mismanaged. Uh, probably the most egregious thing that it has that's wrong with it is that Def Jam and uh, Rush Management shared the same set of books. Um, if you know anything about business, even if you don't know much about business... Uh, you will know that is a major, 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 major business no-no. Um, having two companies with the same set of books, like the same money, is a massive issue. That that can get you brought into the IRS very quick. 
And this all comes to a head in 1988, uh, whenever the BC Boys, well, the BC Boys left uh, Def Jam for Capitol Records. Uh, basically, Russell's was like, yeah, you can leave for Capitol. Uh, Rick Rubin actually theatrically helped them because he's like, you're not going to get what you need with Def Jam. Maybe you should go to maybe you should go to Capitol Records. Uh, this kind of upset Russell Simmons. He's like, hey, he's a pretty you know the BC Boys are a pretty bad act. I feel undermined by my own guy. Meanwhile, Rick Rubin's like, I feel undermined by you know Lear Cohen. And basically, they decide to split. Uh, the record label decides to split. Uh, Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons in their partnership. It only lasted for four years. So by the time that they leave, you know. Rick Rubin's like 24, 25. Russell Simmons is barely 30, maybe 31, 32. And, um, you know, Rick Rubin goes off. He moves to California. He still remains pretty cordial with Simmons. He produces uh, for Def Jam every so often. Uh, They're still quite cordial. Uh, You know, you could tell it's just like a business thing came between the two of them. Like if you ever talk to them, if you ever see them talk, uh, you can tell that there's like genuine affection between the two of them. Like they were genuine friends; they genuinely liked each other. However, business, business, and a friendship did not mix. Now, this departure marked an end of Def Jam, but it also marked a beginning of sorts. Uh, with Rick Rubin gone, Def Jam is now really posed to go a little bit further. Also, I should mention, Run DMC gets into a dispute with their own record label this time period. Uh, remember, they are not signed to Def Jam. They're signed to a different record label. Uh, prevents them for recording for about three years. Uh, by the time they can record again, rap music's kind of moved on. Uh, it's ironic, like, right after their biggest hit, they don't do much of anything. They try to do a New Jack Swing album in the early 90s. Um, it's awful. I, I cannot... We might talk about New Jack Swing next class, but it's not a very good al- uh, album. Um, I'm going to kind of finish talking about Public Enemy. Uh, just prior to leaving Def Jam, Rick Rubin insisted upon signing Public Enemy, a rap group that was made up of a bunch of different guys. You got people like uh, Terminator X, Flavor Flay, Professor Griff. The main rapper is actually uh, Chuck D., uh, Charles Ridenauer is the name of the main guy. It's a very Afrocentric, very militant, very outspoken uh, rap group, very politically minded. Their imagery is super up front. If you listen to their stuff, it is super, super, super in your face. Uh, very black, very aggressive. Now, Simmons was hesitant to sign them. He thought it would, it would kind of turn off the audience base. However, Rick Rubin's like, this is probably the most authentic rebellion you can get. And pretty much what makes Simmons relent is that the sense of rebellion in Public Enemy would give credibility to Def Jam's other artists. Like, because Public Enemy was so outspoken, so, so super black, for lack of a better term, so super street cred, uh, they would give credibility to Def Jam's other groups. So remember, Simmons is kind of going a bit more pop, a bit more R&B. Uh, you know, Simmons was afraid of, at first that it might turn white kids off, but then he's like, well, no, we need to have some a bit of edge. Now, this is really felt in their music video for 1989's Fight the Power. You can go over one slide and see if, uh, you know, a slide of that. Uh, this was this this was a music video which, which was done alongside of Spike Lee's movie Do the Right Thing. 
I'm not sure if you ever watched Do the Right Thing. Um, it came out long before you were born, like 20 years before you were born. Did it really come out 20 years before you were born? No way. 10 years before you were born. Um, yeah, 1989. You are probably born around 2000. So uh, it talks about, about racial conflict uh, basically within one neighborhood in, um, in New York. I think it's in the Bronx that, that it takes place in. Basically a pizza parlor, hot summer day. Uh, the video is for Fight the Power. It, it, it also talks about racial conflict. It's also a critique of post-civil rights America. I'm definitely going to have the video on Moodle. You can watch it. It begins with like a march on Washington. Then Chuck D being like, man, we're not going to do it. Like, you know, we, we got different things. When they do it like a, you know, we're not going out like punks like they did in the 60s. And it's showing that like, hey, there's a new level of protest. Um, you know, the, the public enemy is, is, is theoretically the face uh, of like a new civil rights movement, uh, of a public enemy is leading the charge. It's very defiant, very, very, very defiant in its lyrics. Probably the most famous line was Chuck D goes like, "Elvis, you know, was a hero to somebody, didn't mean sh- to me." Um, blank that you know he's just straight up racist. The dude was, and then Flavor goes, "Yeah, f him and John Wayne." Um, apparently, a lot of white people did not like the line "f him and John Wayne." So there you go. It's a fairly successful music video. Definitely struck a chord in its lyrics. Uh, really makes really makes Public Enemy like poised to be uh, kind of a big something. Make it make it you know not just commercially successful, but maybe it could tap into something deep. The group starts to get very successful, and, and Simmons starts praising them left and right. You know, whereas before he was very hesitant to have them included on Def Jam. Now he can't stop singing their praises. Now this became a problem. If you go over one slide, uh, some interviews, some older interviews with uh, Professor Griff, who is theoretically, I think they called him the Minister of Communication. Uh, he didn't really rap too much, but he was a member of Public Enemy. A series of interviews, of older interviews, of Professor Griff came out, where basically Professor Griff was like, very anti-Semitic. He said a lot of stuff not great about Jewish people, uh, Jewish people enslaving African Americans. I think he says something along the lines of like all problems that are facing black people in this world are directly ties to Jews. A lot of anti-Semitic stuff. Progressive Griff is not unusual in this. Uh, Even this past month, I believe it was Nick Cannon. Was it Nick Cannon? It was, it was somebody in the rap world. I think it was Nick Cannon who said some anti-Semitic stuff. I know some football players got in trouble for saying anti-Semitic stuff. Uh, that's not necessarily unusual. Likewise, it was not very unusual for Professor Griff to say this. Uh, basically, back when you know Public Enemy wasn't as popular, when they weren't the face of the label, uh, he would say kind of you know outlandish stuff, get some publicity, that sort of thing. Uh, however, now that they're the standard bearers of like Def Jam, it becomes problematic. Uh, Def Jam gets like hit by a suit by the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, things like that. Uh, it's also problematic that a lot of the leadership of Def Jam is Jewish. Like, even though Rick Rubin had left the company, he had just left the company at this time. He was the one who brought him in. He's Jewish. Uh, Lear Cohen, the guy pretty much in charge of everything financial for Def Jam, 
uh, after Rick Rubin leaves, Lyricon pretty much takes control of Def Jam and Simmons does his own thing. He's Jewish. Uh, some of the acts signed to Def Jam are or were Jewish. The Beastie Boys were Jewish, but also Third Base. Uh, Third Base is another rap crew that comes out. Uh, they're Jewish as well, and they actually get into a fight. Uh, there's a fight in a studio between members of Third Base and Professor Griff. Uh, a lot of folks at Def Jam, not just artists, but a lot of the people working at Def Jam are Jewish, and they're upset with this. So, with his hand force, basically, Russell Simmons kicks Professor Griff out of the group and makes a lot of noise about how Professor Griff is awful, um, his beliefs don't speak for everybody, how basically, you know, Public Enemy is an amazing group, it's the best thing going in rap music, but Professor Griff is hateful and he needs to go away. Now, to be fair, later on, uh, they would quietly, well, Chuck D would quietly bring back Professor Griff. Then I think they kicked him out again. And, and, and what I need you to realize is kind of this delicate balance where, like, it was okay for Public Enemy to be pro-black. All right? Like, that's part of Russell Simmons' whole thing. He wants defiant, pro-black music, pro-black rebellion music. That's fine. That's dandy. That's going to be the basis of Def Jam's audience base. But when it becomes anti-white, when it becomes anti-Semitic, but really, whenever, whenever you know, this rebellious music goes from being pro-white, sorry, pro-black to anti-white, that's where Russell Simmons kind of draws a line. You know, it, 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 it's a weird dynamic, and, and maybe we can talk about that in class. Now, as I said, uh, we're kind of going to close up here. This is not the end of Def Jam by a long shot. They're going to be around. I'm going to mention them probably throughout the rest of the class. And it's certainly not the end of Russell Simmons. Uh, Russell Simmons is also very much involved. Uh, he'll be involved in the rest of the class. This is, this is going to be the la- final time, though, that I really... Not final. This will be the only time that I, like, extensively focus on him. Uh, Russell Simmons gets involved for decades with hip-hop culture. Uh, Def Jam is still kind of a standard bearer for rap music. Uh, Even though Def Jam is no longer an independent label, it's still seen as a destination for rappers. Uh, You'll hear rappers talking about getting signed to Def Jam or being wanting signed to Def Jam. Uh, I'm just ending it here, kind of. We're going to switch over to the uh, society part because I don't want this to be super long. Remember, I literally wrote a book on this. I literally wrote a book on this. It's coming out. I wrote like 300 pages on this. I've gone on for about an hour now, so we should probably kind of go on to what's going on in America. Now, the broader impact of rap music uh, in the time period of Russell Simmons, his acts of Run DMC and Def Jam Artist, this is the first exposure that most Americans have to rap music. I mean, yes, Rapper's Light is around a little bit, but like sustained exposure to rap music is Russell Simmons acts like for most people in America black white whatever outside of New York City the first rap act they heard was either Run DMC or a Def Jam act and because Russell Simmons like always was insistent upon getting mainstream sales by appealing to white teenagers their profile was super high Um, no other rap label in the late 80s had a higher profile than Def Jam or Run DMC like bar none there there was nobody bigger and as such they really set the standards because they set they were the earliest exposure 
No earlier wrappers had to change. Like if you were to go to a Halloween store and buy a wrapper costume, it was to be a Run DMC hat, you know, the fedora with a gold chain and a jumpsuit. Like still to this day, the the platonic ideal. If you close your eyes and think wrapper, you know, if you're like Adidas jumpsuit, you're like, yeah, that's wrapper wear, or like fedora hat, you know, tennis shoes, that sort of thing. This comes from Run DMC. This comes from Russell Simmons. In a way, the term Def Jam and Run DMC to lesser extent, but really Def Jam, became a catch-all term. Becomes a catch-all term that refers to an entire genre. Like, one company referring to everything. Uh, Probably a good example from also around this time period is Nintendo. I'm sure we all have grandparents or, you know, our parents who are like, what kind of Nintendo is that? And it's like, no, it's a PlayStation or it's an Xbox. But for them, every video game system is a Nintendo, just like for people in this general, for mainstream America, not the rappers necessarily, not hip-hoppers necessarily, but for America as a whole, and the people who would later come to rap. You know, young black kids in other parts of the country would come to rap. Their first exposure to rap music and rappers is Def Jam. And so, it becomes assumed that everybody is signed to Def Jam. You know, all rappers are Russell Simmons people. And that's really what we're going on here. Now, the thing is, though, the dangerous elements of rap music really start to become sensationalized. Uh, For the first time, even though rap has gotten more popular, it's more popular than it ever has been, it's also finally starting to get very sensationalized. Earlier rap music wasn't super sensationalized simply because it wasn't so big. This happens for a few reasons. Uh, Number one, there is a shooting at a Def Jam, sorry, a Run DMC concert. Uh, it does not involve the groove whatsoever. This is a outside shooting. It was like a gang thing or a dispute that happened, you know, just seemed to occur. Uh, had nothing to do with the groove, it just happened to happen at the concert. Somebody died. Uh, that haunts the group for years, just the idea that somebody died at a concert of theirs. Uh, likewise, uh, at movie theaters, when, where Crush Groove is screened, There are, you know, acts of violence, gang fights, things like that. Nothing to do with the movie itself. It's just basically young black people gathering together. Uh, If young black people get... The the, the logic goes for people who want to sensationalize rap music. If young black people gather together, bad things happen. Uh, Young black people gather together because of rap stuff. Ergo, rap makes bad things happen. This shows a theoretical theoretical correlation. There we go between rap, music, and violence. Even though the lyrics aren't super violent yet, we haven't got into, like, gangster rap music. That's going to be two classes from now. Uh, But the genre and, like, basically, the movies are really blamed for making young black people violent. And the thing is, there are way bigger factors to play here. You know, the the shooting that happened in the Run DMC show had nothing to do with Run DMC, had nothing to do with their lyrics, had to do with an outside conflict. Likewise, uh, most people who go to these shows don't get involved in that. Uh, video games is another thing. You hear people talk about, like, oh, violent video games are ru- ruining use. Uh, you know, that causes a school shooting or something. Most people who play video games aren't violent. Just like most people who listen to rap music aren't violent. It's just kind of a scapegoat thing. Now, there are tons of examples of this during the 80s. Uh, video games become uh, sensationalized like this. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, if you're familiar with that, Dungeons and Dragons, 
gets really demonized in a certain way, in the same way. A lot of youth culture in the 80s gets demonized as somewhat deviant and bad behavior. Uh, because rap is demonized in the same way as metal and other genres, it does, it, you know, since it has some crossover, you do get a little bit of rap music being seen as like, oh, this is something bad, oh, this is something that is uh, taking the roof, the, the youth. What is interesting, and this is something that, like, we might be able to talk about, is that the other things are de- generally deemed as satanic. Uh, Dragon is generally deemed as satanic. Metal music, like death metal or whatever, not even death metal, but heavy metal, is deemed satanic. Uh, like, as though there are supernatural elements at play, uh, making the youth go bad. Whereas rap music is never blamed for being satanic or, or devilish. Pretty much, it's just black. <laughs> it's as though, you know, only a, a good white person, quote-unquote, would have to be influenced as something as vile as the devil to go bad, whereas black people really don't need the push. They just listen to the you know the black music. It's inherent in black nature. That makes them vile and violent. Uh, that's interesting when you talk about the sensationalizing. I should also mention that crack is around during this time period. And Reagan's revolution... When we talk about Ronald Reagan during this time period, uh, it really changes the onus for societal ills because things do get worse. I mean, things were not exactly great in the South Bronx, but when they start, when they when Reagan starts cutting um, social services and things, it makes a bad situation kind of worse in some ways. But Reagan justifies it because what is what is the onus on societal ills? What makes bad things happen? Generally, this is probably the most political I'll ever get in this class, but generally, if you talk about a societal problem, a conservative will say it is the individual's choice that caused it. The, the, the real onus of, of fault is with the individual. So, like, drug problems are because people choose to take drugs. And so the way that we can stop people from taking drugs is convince them not to take drugs. You get things like the Just Say No campaign. You know, that, that's what they say. The bad things in society are, are it's because of the individual. And the way to get it, you know, to get out of a bad situation is individual choices. Whereas Reagan's opponents would say it's more about society. It's more systems-based. You know, people tr- take drugs because the system is broken. Because they feel like they don't have a choice. So they do it feeling they don't have a choice. And that's what we need to fix. So because Reagan's so, in, you know, so pushing this idea that, you know, it's individual choices that make things happen, government programs get cut. It's like, you know, if people are going to do it anyway, why are we spending money trying to stop them? Because they choose to do this. Also, you need to mention, this is the time where baby boomers start having kids who are getting into their teenage-ish years. Uh, Baby boomers are having kids. These are the Gen Xers. And they're young millennials. I was around, but I was super young during this time period. And baby boomers are overly sensitive about what they're putting in. You know, what kind of media are they getting? You have this a little bit with early rock and roll, but now it's kind of dialed up to 11. And we're going to end because next week we're going to talk about one of two ways that rap music starts to change where people start really talking about the impact on children. Uh, the second one is one you may certainly be familiar with. That's gangster rap music. You're familiar with gangster rap. But next week we're going to be talking about two live crew and profane lyrics, like lewd lyrics, and that impact. 
Not music that's overly violent, but movie music that's overly sexual. And with that, this is Dr. Tully. Y'all have a good one.